I do have a hard time loving my own body because I don't like being limited. I don't like being in pain all the time. I don't like not being able to do the same things that other people can do just because of my body. I wish that there were ways that I could find to be kinder to myself, but that is a monumental task. Hello, I'm Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and want to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are also interested. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Michelle. This was recorded on October 22, 2022. I know that this interview was a little difficult for me, perhaps because I was feeling off that day, but it also could have been that this reminded me of a good friend of mine with chronic pain who died a couple of years ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic. I wish I could have had such a conversation with her. I'll mention a couple of things here. One is that there is a knocking sound that you'll hear a couple of times, uh, which I believe is from her heating pad, which Michelle takes with her everywhere. And two is that she had to readjust several times because of her pain. I really appreciated having this conversation with Michelle as she talked very honestly about her experience with chronic pain and illness and how that not only changes the day to day, but also long held dreams and desires. Content warnings for talk about COVID, medical trauma, gynecology, and also abortion, including some details about the procedure. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly, but about people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here's my interview with Michelle. Well, the first question that I ask everyone is, how do we know each other? We know each other from a group that we both attend um, on sexual-based recovery. So um, I've been in that group for, oh my gosh, 15 years now. And uh, I go to a lot around this general area and we happened to run into each other at one of them and became fast friends. Yeah. I think I remember, I can't remember if this was the first time or if this was the second time I went uh, to that group, but you were celebrating seven years of sobriety. Yeah. I'm coming up on 10 this year. So yeah. in a couple was... of weeks. This was 2019. Okay. Yeah. So that sounds about right. And I remember you had friends there specifically to support you. And I remember connecting a little bit with you after. And it was interesting because I generally, hmm, I guess I'd been going to groups like these for two months by that point. Okay. And 
yeah, I guess I'd become comfortable enough that I was okay interacting with a woman because in the other group that I'd been attending, I felt really stressed by interacting with women because I'm like, I'm not one of you, leave me alone. Like, stop trying to get me in your club. I'm cool. But I think by the time that I got to your your group, I was okay with that. And I am the only woman in that group of like 25 people. Yeah. So I pretty much make everybody interact with me. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> no one can get away from you. No one can get away from me. No, no. And I also like to be the greeter and say hello to everybody who's new and try and make sure everybody gets a chance to interact. And if I see people who aren't interacting, I make sure to go up to them afterwards. And yeah, that's just my personality type. <laughs> yeah. No, you've, you've always been very welcoming and very supportive. Yeah. That was a, that was a long time ago. It's a long time <laughs> that ago. That was a pandemic ago. That was a whole pandemic ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how long ago that is now. A whole new world where we used to hold hands and hug all the time. And yeah, it's interesting because I've noticed as things have started moving back to in-person since the pandemic, Mm -hmm. I'm a big hugger, right? I was always the person giving hugs to everybody. Ask, <laughs> I was asked people's boundaries first, you know, is it okay if I give you a hug and whatever. And now since the pandemic, I almost have a fear of hugging mm. people. Mm. And like, I have a fear of handholding with people and must touch elbows. Right. It's, mm. it's been interesting how the pandemic has changed a very touchy feely person like myself yes. into a huge germaphobic type person because I've been terrified of what the pandemic would do to my body. Yeah. Right. And I, I had good reason to be terrified. Um, yeah. And since having it, I've dealt with the after effects. I've been dealing with it for four months now, three months now. Yeah, you said that you had gone from, well, I don't know how long you were using it before, but now you had to use your inhaler every day. Um, I was about once every three months. Oh, okay. To every day. Every single day. I now am using my inhaler. Um, yeah. It's been, it's been terrible. Like, I find that I can't breathe. Um, I'll wake up in the middle of the night just wheezing. You can hear my lungs making noise. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's I got the long version or if it's just Mm -hmm. it damaged my lungs or what. Or you're someone who has asthma and a number of, you know, chronic conditions, which means that it affected you more. Exactly. Exactly. Pretty well known for this um, pandemic to hit people who have lung problems already. Exactly. So, you know, I understand that I deal with a number of disabling issues around my body to begin with. Um, I have fibromyalgia. I have some other chronic lung conditions, right? I have asthma. I, I deal with debilitating pain. And so I was always terrified of getting COVID 
just because I was terrified of what it would do to my already immunosuppressed body. Yeah. And since testing positive three, four months ago, it's, it's shown me every single reason I had to be terrified. Mm. Right. Mm. I was even lucky and got to take the medication that knocks it out right away. But it wasn't until I had three days of, okay, is it now that I call 911? Okay. Is it Mm. now that I call 911? Do I think I can make it till the medication kicks in? Do I think I can make it just long enough without a breathing treatment at the hospital? Like it was awful. And I'm also lucky, like I want to knock on a good piece of wood, except for sound reasons. Um, (laughs) I've never had the flu. So like getting it for getting COVID like felt to me like what everybody's explained the flu would be like. Yeah, it just, it, it felt like what everybody had explained the flu would be like. The terrible body aches, the chills, the the pain, the insomnia, the extreme tiredness, like that dichotomy of I'm so exhausted, but I can't sleep because everything hurts too much and I'm coughing too much. And mm. yeah, so um, I'm glad that only lasted three days. Yeah until the medication like took over and it was finally on the upswing. Yeah. But like I said, like I debated back and forth, like is now when I call, what about now? And, um, yeah. Yeah. I was just realizing in the interviews that I've done so far, the pandemic has barely been mentioned. Oh, really? It's definitely not something that we've talked about. Um, maybe it's something in passing, but I actually find that curious because it's been this huge, deeply, um, like it's deeply affected all of our lives, but, um, yeah. I, I think when you're immunocompromised in some way, or you deal with physical disabilities in some way, Mm -hmm. the pandemic hits you harder. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm a double masker still. Like if I leave my house, I go out wearing two masks, no matter where I go, even just to go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. I, I've been a little bit more lax about doing things. Like I've gone to the movies. Mm -hmm. I wear two masks at the movies and bring my own wipes to wipe down the seats. And then, um, you know, make sure that everything is as nice as pristine and seats away from people and everything. So that way I can go to the movies and still feel safe. Yeah. But I still have some friends that still won't even go out to eat or go to a movie or the one time we did go to a movie, we rented out the entire movie theater for all 20 of us. Yeah. We created this little COVID pod at the beginning of COVID and we've stuck really carefully in that pod. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting because well, I, I also made a pod at the beginning of COVID, but you know, I'm I'm at a place where I'm much more lax about it. Not not that I 
don't do anything to to care to care about it. But I think I've just gotten tired of it, and I've been around a lot of people who are tired of it. Yeah, and I know that like with you and I, there's been like some moments of like friction of like me being like ah fuck masks, <laughs> <laughs> and then sort of remembering of like friendship is good respecting <laughs> friendship is good and health and stuff like that and so it um i think it is helpful for me to hear from you how much this this has affected you and that you're like oh no i was absolutely right to be this careful because yeah because it really affected you it really really affected me like when it first popped positive, I did not know if I was going to live, to be quite honest. Like, that was my big fear. And, um, of course, it was the first time I was going to be letting myself really go do something as I was going to be traveling to my best friend's wedding. Yeah. And it was the day before I was supposed to get on the airplane. Mm. And I get, I don't have, like, I have a little bit of a scratchy throat. I'm going to test the day before I leave just to be safe. Because mm. I normally test before we I do anything just to be safe, right? Like, we have a group of friends. There's eight of us. If we're going to hang out, we all take at-home tests and post it in our group chat. And so I decided to take this at-home test just to be safe. And it popped positive. And, you know, a couple of things run through my mind instantly was, A, I'm letting my friend down because yeah. I'm supposed to be there and be the point person for the wedding and be the person making the cake. And then B, am I going to live? Will my body be healthy enough that I'll make it through this? And, you know, as I got sicker and sicker over the next three or four days, like that thought kept coming up more and more and more where I wasn't able to physically leave my bed because I was just in so much pain and just everything that went along with COVID, like it was awful. So I'm lucky that I have a supportive partner who never ended up positive, even though we lived together. And he took great care of me, um, ran all of the errands that I needed, did all of that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of my biggest fears, though, of getting it was, would I survive it? Yeah. And I've survived it, but I can't say it. I wasn't right to be scared because it has changed my life, you know, like I can't walk up a flight of stairs without thinking about having had COVID because I can't breathe. Yeah. So it's, it is what it is, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm brought back to the beginning of the pandemic. Um, where a friend of mine with cystic fibrosis died and 
I don't think we'll ever be quite sure whether or not she uh, had COVID. Things, tests were not all that great back then, and it was in a different country. And But uh, she definitely died due to the pandemic existing, whether or not she actually had it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've now lost 22 people because of COVID from people who refused to get vaccinated then dying of it mm. or people being too immunocompromised to be able to fight it off. Mm. 22 people since the start of the pandemic. Mm. To include my aunt and uncle who refused to get vaccinated mm. and then died from it. Mm. You know, it's, um, it's one of those polarizing issues, right? people not wanting to get vaccinated or vaccinated or not wanting to wear a mask or wanting to wear a mask. And I, I've tried to be as respectful as I can of other people. Mm. Like you don't want to get vaccinated. Okay, great. I just can't hang out with you. Mm. Right. You don't want to wear a mask. Okay, great. I just can't hang out with you because I have to protect myself. And, you know, that's been the hardest part for me is I had so many friends that refused to look at the, you know, stuff and, and, and decided that it, getting vaccinated wasn't right for them and then dying. Mm -hmm. And it, it becomes harder and harder to hold that space for them mm -hmm. where, yes, I respect your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I found that it's easier to not talk about it yeah. with them if we have differing views, because there just does not seem to be a place where we can meet in the middle and, and necessarily have an adult conversation around it. Yeah. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So like I said, I've, I've tried to be as respectful as I can with other people's opinions. And at the same time, also make my health my priority. Yeah. Yeah, I have friends from, from multiple perspectives. Not all perspectives, but from multiple, multiple perspectives on this. And it, it's very messy. Right. Well, I, I think... When anything comes to our own autonomy over our own body, yeah, it's bound to to be polarizing in that way, where people felt they were being pushed into doing something they didn't want to do, or mm -hmm. you know whatever that may be. Um, there becomes a a desire for that personal freedom, even if it's not for the greater good. And I knew I had to do what was best for me yeah. and what was best for my community, which was my choice to get vaccinated. And I'm thankful I was yeah, because I think that's another reason that I, I ultimately was able to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm counting down the days until I can go get my booster. Because right. you have to be 90 days past your last infection. 
to get the booster. Yeah. So, but that's, that's the choice that's right for me. Mm-hmm. And that's the choice that's right for the people that I'm in a, you know, COVID bubble with. Yeah. Yeah, I know that makes sense. Hmm. I wasn't even thinking we were going like, right? to jump into that pile of worms. <laughs> I don't, actually, yeah. I just totally ruined that phrase. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I think I think it's it's obviously relevant, especially for you and your body. Um, yeah. And we maybe we'll get back to that. Um, the second question that I ask people is um, I just ask you to introduce yourself. Yeah. What is important for others to know? about you okay or what is important for you to express to others okay well um my name is michelle um i am 40 years old what else is there important for other people to know about me i'm a musician i actually play flute and piccolo Mm. which is another reason my lungs are very important to me Mm. i am a mom to three wonderful kitties and two puppies. And I am a partner of 10 years to a wonderful human being. Also, I'm just going to put this in there because I feel like it's important. You are a huge like Wizard of Oz fan. I am a huge (laughs) Wizard of Oz fan. I have an immense collection for the Wizard of Oz. Um, I am an avid collector of all things Oziana. And whenever we're on Zoom calls, which we are quite often, um, where I'm sitting is inside my Wizard of Oz office, which mm. I love when people are like, do I see something new on your shelf? I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> Tell me what you saw. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I just... We couldn't get past your introduction without mentioning the Wizard <laughs> without of Oz. Without mentioning the Wizard of Oz. Yes. Yes. My office is basically two things, Wizard of Oz and yarn. Yes. I always have yarn on me, usually at some point. There's, there's some right here. Because I brought my knitting, because I always do. Mm. I like to knit and crochet. And you are now actually making something for yourself which you rarely do i indeed yeah i've been crocheting since i was five and i've never stopped to make something for myself so i made myself fingerless gloves for the first time because they're so soft because i used crushed velvet yarn Mm. i'm one of those people that i'm always wanting to make and give things to other people so to actually stop and do something for myself was kind of a big step. Yeah, it's, you are a very giving and loving person, but you often forget that you need to leave some for yourself. Yes, I, that is very, very true. That is very true. Um, I would give you the shirt off my back if you needed it kind of thing, Mm -hmm. forgetting, you know, about myself in the process. And that's just who I've always been. I've always thought about other people outside of myself. It's, it's been very hard to be selfish. And 
I think the only thing I've started becoming selfish about is since the pandemic started again, Mm -hmm. was starting to be selfish about insisting that people that are around me wear masks and that Mm -hmm. I wear a mask. And that's the one thing I've been selfish about. Yeah. Because my health is important to me. And that's only been over the last couple of years that my health started becoming important to me before it was just something I just kind of, it just kind of existed. Mm. And, you know, I was surviving. Mm. And so since the pandemic, I've started making it more of a priority. Yeah, I know for me, it was getting into recovery. I think I, I had, before that, I did have an experience where I, I realized I needed to start taking care of my body, but really, really it was getting into recovery and going to therapy and realizing that I was falling apart, that I was like, oh, like, I really need to take care of this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just remember, like, talking about, you know, with someone of, like, the idea of, like, when you are addicted to something, you tend to not think about anything else mm-hmm. other than that. And that means that your health, uh, mental health, physical health, spiritual health just goes by the wayside. Somebody said to me recently that addiction is giving up everything for one thing. Mm-hmm. And that includes m- mental health, physical health, everything. And then recovery is giving up one thing to get everything. Yeah. And that truly getting into recovery is starting to get all those pieces back. And while I've been in recovery for a long period of time, I had left my body as kind of one of those last little pieces Mm -hmm. just because I think it centered a lot around depressive thinking of where I don't matter. Yeah. Everybody else matters, which means everything else I need to do for every everybody else matters more yeah. than actually myself. And it wasn't until 2019 was actually the year that I started deciding that I need to start taking better care of myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I started seeing specialists and... Mm-hmm getting help with things that have been going on inside of my body for a long time and actually starting to get tests done and, and seek treatment yeah. because fibromyalgia is quite debilitating in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your body's just in constant chronic pain from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to sleep. And sometimes it'll even wake you up out of a dead sleep in pain. Mm-hmm. And um, starting to want something more than that. Yeah. Want more than just surviving day to day really pushed me to start taking care of myself. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm lucky it lined up how it did. Yeah. And having the time during the pandemic to start seeing specialists and start getting some of the care that I needed. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe it was during the pandemic that 
you were diagnosed with MS, correct? Well, so they tentatively gave me a, a diagnosis of MS. They haven't confirmed or declined it either way. Hmm. Um, they want me to go in for an MRI and I can't do that with the amount of metal that's in my body. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I have 35 piercings and some of them are surgically implanted. Yep. And so to be able to go in to have an MRI because it is a huge magnet would yeah. include a lot hours of removal first. Some of which would be quite difficult to get back in. Correct. Yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. That's a pretty big thing to have just sort of looming. Yeah, looming, floating without knowing. Yeah, um, they looked at a CT scan that I had and said that the more likelihood of not having it versus having it, mm -hmm. it's more than likely you don't, but there's a possibility you could. Okay. I think that's where I left it off with my doctor the last time we talked about it. So we're going to mm -hmm. work as if it doesn't exist. Okay. I know. <laughs> yeah. Without an MRI, I can't confirm or decline to have it in right. one way so it's like um what's her, the, the the cat um, schrodinger's cat. cat yeah schrodinger's cat of ms exactly it both exists and doesn't exist at the same time yeah well to sort of rewind a bit um since you know we're already getting into like illness and pain and stuff like that um yeah could you tell me yeah what has your relationship with your body been and how how all of these you know obviously you have these pain issues and illness but you have a lot of other things going on too um yeah so what is my relationship with my body um you know, that's a, a very interesting question to pose because you and I've had this conversation before where I've actually had to go through a mourning process mm -hmm. of, of my body. Um, I've had to mourn the idea of ever getting well mm -hmm. or well enough to do certain things. Um, I had a hysterectomy uh, at the beginning of 2019, um, to try and reduce some pain. And I had to go through a mourning process, not just of losing the ability to have children, which having children was something that I'd always wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, but losing the hope that my body would ever be well enough for me to be able to have children, mm -hmm. um, was really, really devastating for me in a lot of ways. And I've had to come to terms with the idea of ever not being disabled. Mm -hmm. um, 
I will be disabled for the rest of my life. That's what it is. It's, you know, and, um, I starting to come to terms with that again, during this process of also starting to take my health back into my own hands. I also ended up gaining a lot of weight during the pandemic medicine changes, becoming less active because I'm at home and all these other things. So there's also that relationship with my weight and my health and suddenly going into a doctor and having them say, well, if you lost weight, you might feel better. No, no, that's not, you know, um, that's one of the unfortunate parts about being overweight and being disabled is that they discount a lot of your disability if you aren't a perfect weight. Um, I am lucky to be working with a good pain doctor, but I've had to let go of the idea of ever being well enough to do a lot of things in my life and understand that there are still things that I can do. There's things that I want to do that it just takes time to get my body well enough to do something like my partner and I wanted to go on a 6,000 mile motorcycle journey on our own motorcycles. Mm -hmm. And it took a little over a year and a half for us to get my back well enough to be able for me to be on my own bike and do that trip. But we had to make accommodations for me along the way. Like we had to stop every hundred miles so I could get off the bike and walk. And we would do one hard day of riding and then one day of resting and seeing museums and doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then another really hard day of riding and then another day of going and and seeing the sites and going to museums Mm -hmm. and things just so that way it wasn't just hard days of riding one after the other after the other. Um, So it's just finding those accommodations and Again, I'm so, so lucky to have my partner. He is phenomenal and really goes out of his way to accommodate me and my body in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Like, I know it's embarrassing to him when we go to a movie and after half an hour, I have to stand up and stretch. And so I always get seats that are, you know, towards the back or off to the side. So that way I can get up yeah. and, um, he's just, he just rolls with it, you know? So, um, you'll probably cut this out, but my partner's last girlfriend before me had Mm -hmm. stick straight blonde hair, blue eyes, and a lower back injury from a car accident. I'm like, you have a really specific type. Do you just like ask for x-rays on the first date (laughs) or... Mm. Hmm. (laughs) so I'm pretty lucky that um he understands in a lot of ways so but yeah one of the the bigger things was the idea of having a hysterectomy to be able to fight pain Mm -hmm. I was bleeding 25 to 30 days a month And the doctors couldn't give me a reason why I did not have endometriosis. Mm. And even... To interrupt quickly. Yeah. uh, This is before you had 
surgery? Yeah. Okay. This is why you were getting This is why I was getting the surgery. Not that this was, you had this and then this happened. Yeah. Okay. No, I, for years of my life, had been horrifically bleeding. Um, My periods were 14 days of heavy, heavy, like, we're timing this to see if we need to go to the hospital. Heavy bleeding. For those who don't have uteruses, if you go through more than a pad or a tampon in an hour, you're losing too much blood too quickly. And you're supposed to go to the doctor, go to an emergency room and have a transfusion. Mm -hmm. And there were times I was timing that out as quickly as I could, you know, to make sure that I wasn't going to have to need to go to an emergency room. And when they put you on birth control, it's supposed to reduce the amount of days you have a period. And so I went from 14 days down to 10, but still 10 days of heavy, heavy bleeding. And then in my 20s, it just became 15 days and then 20 days and then 25 days and then 25 to 30 days. And nobody could ever tell me why. And we tried all sorts of different birth controls and all sorts of different medications. And finally, because I, w- I would get horrible spasms from where my uterus laid on my spine, which is the same place mm. where I'd fractured my spine, where I have a bulging mm. disc, where I have all sorts of other unhealed issues. Um, my doctor said to me, well, you're 36. Do you think you're going to have children? And I said, no, I don't think I will. And he said, then why don't we look at having either an ablation or a full hysterectomy? And so I ended up having a total hysterectomy at the age of 36. Mm -hmm. And um, it was honestly one of the best decisions I could have made for myself physically. And at the same time, mentally, it was very hard very hard to have made that decision yeah when you said that question of like do you think you're gonna have children it just sort of hit me um, especially knowing you would you mind talking a little bit about your history with that yeah so ever since I was little I've always wanted to be a mom I wanted to have kids more than anything but I was never in the right place in my life And I did end up getting pregnant um, back in in 2011. Um, And the person, I was only with one person. And so when the stick popped positive a few weeks later, I was able to call that person and say, hey, this is what's going on. I mean, at the time period in my life, I was living with my grandparents doing their end of life care. I was living in a bedroom in the back of their house. I didn't make enough money to be able to move out. So I would have had to figure out some way to make enough money to move out on my own, to raise this child on my own, or make the decision that it wasn't the right time, the right everything was not right at the time to be able to do this. And I know there's never anything that says it's going to be the right time, but um, he asked me to go ahead and go through with an abortion. And I did. And it has been one of those decisions that's haunted me ever since. 
Um, they gave you the opportunity to see what comes out of you. And I took that opportunity and I still have nightmares about it, even though that was 11 years ago. Every Mother's Day, I still cry because of the idea of the fact that it wasn't a womb, it became a tomb for this child. And uh, then, you know, seven years later, being asked, are you going to have children? And being like, no, I'm not. I, my body could never handle me being pregnant. You know, my I, everything had gone too down, far downhill with my health. And my partner and I decided that we don't want children. And this losing... A, um, I just want to clarify, this is a different This is partner. a different partner. This is who I'm with now, who I've been with for the last 10 years, who I met two years after I had my abortion. He we decided we did not want to have children and I would rather spend the rest of my life with him together and happy than, you know, have a child. Um, there's a lot of other ways I can give love. And, um, when I made the decision actually to have the abortion or not to have the abortion, oh my God, when I made the decision to have the hysterectomy, he knew I needed something else in my life. So we started fostering puppies because I needed something to be maternal about. And um, he did everything in his power to help me have everything I could possibly need to be able to go through with the decision and make sure the decision was right for me. There was a lot of late night conversations and um, just being with each other and talking it through and making sure that it was a, the right decision for me, but be the right decision for us. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I feel very blessed that I'm in such a great partnership that that's why I always call him my partner. You know, I could call him my boyfriend, but he's so much more than that to me. He's really a partner in my life. Mm -hmm. And I also am a big fan of the gender neutral terms for partners than the gendered terms. So mm -hmm. I do tend to call him my partner a lot more than my boyfriend. Mm. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's a lot of my history around that. Um, it was one of the worst days of my life having to go through with that. And I was completely alone in the clinic. Nobody went with me. Um, which one? Oh, sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so when I went and had the abortion, um, I was completely alone in the abortion clinic. Nobody went with me. And um, I was actually really lucky. I ran into somebody from the program there. And she was there with a partner. And I think she recognized in me that I was alone. And it's kind of like this unwritten rule that if you run into somebody outside of a meeting that you don't acknowledge them unless they kind of acknowledge you. Mm -hmm. And she came over to me and she's like, I, I recognize you. And I'm like, I recognize you too. And she sat there with me for three hours while we went through um, 
you know, waiting and um, comforted me. And that was one of the kindest things that somebody's done for me because that was, that was a really hard day, really, really hard day. And then going back to work the next day, like nothing had happened. And it was hard for me because I wanted to be like, can't you people see like everything has changed. Everything is different. Nothing is the same anymore. And having to pretend like everything was. I'm going to get a Kleenex now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, just being alone. Fortunately, you weren't. You didn't end up being alone. But um, when you were talking about that, you know, you had this opportunity to to look at what had come out of your body, even though I know that the doctors must have been there, what I was imagining in my head was just you alone with... Do you have um, language that you prefer? Yeah, so it was literally a custard cup, like what you use in your kitchen, a Pyrex custard cup, mm-hmm. and it had water inside of it. And it was literally, I was only six and a half, seven weeks along. So it was literally the size of like a pinhead for like quilting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so tiny. Um But even to see that, like, I have a hard time with custard cups now. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine so. And I have, you know, I I cook a lot. I cook every night for my partner and I. I cook. I love baking. I love doing all those kinds of things. Um, But every once in a while, I'll I'll go to grab that and it's just a flashback. And um, you can't really control that. Yeah, it was, and just being given that opportunity, I should not have taken it. I was about to ask. Oh, I fully regret it. Yeah. I fully regret it. Um, I know for some people it helps them let go and say goodbye. It did not for me. Um, I was, again, lucky because at the clinic, um, when I was in there, they realized how not okay I was and they actually brought in another nurse just to hold my hand Mm -hmm. like a whole extra nurse in the room that didn't need to be there because I was crying very very heavily um I've always had a hard time with pap smears or anything dealing with that part of my body like I have some really bad body memories of something and I have an idea of what it is. It deals with being a child and getting horrible infections all the time Mm. and being taken to the doctor and being held down as a five-year-old to be given a pelvic exam. Mm. And I have these horrible body memories about it. And so I always have to tell a new gynecologist, like, I'm going to cry. This is going to happen. But you don't have to cry with me. Right. And usually they'll, they'll relax and they'll help me and they'll talk to me. Um, but so I'm going through all of that 
in this clinic. Plus I'm alone. Plus I'm making a decision I don't want to be making. Right. It's, it's letting go of this hope and dream of being a mom. Right. And being like, I am pregnant. Like, Maybe I could make it work. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Mm. But being like, well, I'll have other opportunities. I'm only 29. I'm only, right? And um, yeah, I did not realize that that would be my opportunity to have a child. And that even at that point, my body probably wasn't well enough that I was already dealing with immense pain at that point. I was already on a, a narcotic pain regimen by that point in my life mm-hmm. because of, of, you know, fibromyalgia and all this other stuff. Um, so I can't even say that it would have been a healthy mm-hmm. pregnancy. Yeah. I was already taking medications that are very detrimental to, to, two fetuses and um it was probably the best decision that I could have made yeah it doesn't mean that I don't still think about it all the time yeah something I wanted to just sort of check in on because I don't remember this from the first time that we talked about it um did you feel pressure from the person you were with at the time we weren't together and it yes i did and i didn't um he when i sent him a picture of the stick basically he said do i have a choice do i have a say and i said of course this is half yours what's what's your say? And, and his stance was, I already have three kids. I can't see because he's just gotten out of prison. Long story, not my story to tell. And he wanted to work on being a better father to the children that he has. Didn't Mm -hmm. want any more children. I have to say that he's since had four more children Mm -hmm. since that time, total of seven or eight now. And every time he announces the birth of another child on Facebook, that it's that much more painful remembering him saying to me, Hey, I, I don't want to have any more kids and um, making that decision because I thought I was doing right by him and myself and, and this potential child by honoring his wishes. And, um, so I, I feel like there was a little bit of pressure in that way. Um, but ultimately whatever I had decided, he would have supported me. So yes and no, (laughs) I guess is the best answer for that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's such a complicated topic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's an, um, a complicated topic, but such a complicated experience for you and for anyone who is around you. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'd mentioned I was living with my grandparents at the time, and um, they're both 
very religious Mm. and I actually did get the opportunity to talk with my grandma about it probably like six months later. Mm. I had mentioned that the day that we'd gotten into this big fight, we'd gotten into this big fight because I'm like, I know I'm home from work early, but I'm leaving. I've got to go do something. Mm. And I didn't want to tell her what it was. And we were having this disagreement over something. I don't even remember what it was at this point. Mm. You know, and when I came home later in that day, I just went to my room and cried. And um, I, I got to talk to her about it. And she just comforted me. And I did not think that would be my hyper conservative grandmother's response. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she just listened. Yeah. So it was kind of nice to be able to have that conversation with her later as she was getting older and older and older she couldn't do many things for herself so on the weekends I would get out of bed get up give her her medication and then sometimes I'd crawl into bed with her and we would just talk and yes I know I'm a 30 year old woman doing this but it was some of the best conversations that we'd ever had my grandma and I and um I'm glad that I was able to talk to her about it before she passed and understand that she was a lot more compassionate of a person than the hyper conservative religious person I took her for. Yeah. It's interesting how we can be surprised in in both negative and positive ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking of you apologizing for... <laughs> for having this wonderful these wonderful moments with your grandmother and of course there are times where things like that could be concerning or non-consensual but like what a it was a really wholesome memory yes yeah well yeah i think i, I was i was like what where are my words my words are just gone um but it's this whole body experience of being with someone else and being close and feeling comfort yeah I as hard as it was to do end-of-life care for my grandparents to be able to be there with them through those hard moments right when my grandma had gout and couldn't use her hands anymore and I'm the person who's there helping her right And that's where it really becomes full circle when she took care of me when I was a child. And here I am taking care of her and bathing her and helping her. And, you know, we had these moments the last couple of years of her life where we would just end up in these really deep conversations, she and I, Mm -hmm. because we're in these really intimate moments. And I think to make them less awkward in some ways, we ended up getting into these really deep conversations. Yeah. I'm glad you had that. I am too. I am too. It was, it was really, really nice to be able to have that closeness with my grandma before she passed. I was lucky I got to have that kind of closeness with all four of my grandparents before they passed away. And that very very hard 20 month period where I lost all four of them. Yeah. Yeah. 
back to back to back to back. Something that I was noting as you were talking about the nurses and your experience with gynecological appointments and things like that is um, what you would say is, okay, this is, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to cry. You don't have to cry. Mm-hmm. I'm just noticing how much your need to care for them <laughs> is. And I, I say this because I'm like this. Um, and people point it out to me <laughs> and that I know that fits with a lot of who you are as well. And we've talked about that some too. Um, yeah, I, I am a big caretaker of other people, um, to the detriment of myself sometimes, but yeah, I, I do definitely try and, and care t- take other people's emotions and mm-hmm. other people's experiences with me because I don't want to leave anybody with a negative experience, even though like my own experience inside my own body is so negative. Most of the time, Mm. I don't want anybody else to have that negative experience. Mm. So I try and overcompensate by being funny or being caring or, or just anything in order to make their experience, not what mine is. Yeah, I am. This, of course, makes me think of of codependency, which is something I certainly, certainly struggle with. Um, So I, we've sort of gotten around this topic, but do you think you could talk about the reason why you are in the program? Yeah. um, How did I enter the program? I, I got there because... I went to a therapist to help her fix me so I could make somebody love me again because um, I didn't know what life would be without a relationship or another person. Mm -hmm. And I figured something had to be broken inside of me because I couldn't, this one person that I wanted to love me had walked away from me. Mm -hmm. And so ended up talking for 45 minutes to this therapist. And at the end, she's like, wow, did you know that you really belong in this program? I'm like, uh, no. And she ended up having me read a book and then come back with it and tell her what I thought. And I told her I hated her book when I came back the next week. And so she ended up giving me 12 more books. And of course I hated all of them. (laughs) And, um, Finally, she asked if I would be willing to go to a meeting. And that was the first time that I really saw that I was not alone, that what I was going through was not unique, that there were other people like me out there, and that all I had to do was want to get better, and I, I could find the ways to do it. And... I wish I could say that once I entered the program that I stayed and that it was great and I found recovery right away. But unfortunately that's not my experience. And I, I hear it's pretty common, but you end up in our program in basically a crisis. And then when your crisis is over, a lot of people leave and I left and I ended up back in a deeper crisis than before. Mm. And I left again once my crisis was over and went through that two or three times. And finally, 
when I got to the program and my crisis had ended, I ended up staying. And that's where I finally started to see some sobriety time build up, not just recovery time. And I actually finally got the opportunity to start really working on some of these deep seated issues that I've held for a long period of time Mm. and, you know, over caretaking of other people, Mm. um, self-degradating comments, Mm. all these kinds of things that I know I still do in passing because they're so ingrained. Um, but now I can actually be in a program of recovery, working on these actively, honestly, daily. Yeah. I, I remember my first year anniversary. I was like, Whoa, (laughs) I was was really excited. And then my second year, I was like, um, I think because at that point I realized, Oh, like this is, um, this is hard. And like, it's not just like, don't do this. Uh, It was like, Oh, well, there's a lot of, a lot of deep seated issues and way like all these different kinds of recovery that I need. And man, this is exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. It's so, I can describe it best in terms of like alcoholism. Um, abstinence is the alcoholic who realizes they have a drinking problem, but still goes to the bar and orders the drink, but just doesn't have it. Mm -hmm. And then when they start to get some sobriety, they make the decision not to go to the bar. And then when they get into recovery, they make the decision to try and work on what made them want to go to the bar in the first place. Mm. So for me to like really get some sobriety and recovery time meant a lot of really hard, hard work Mm. to really look at why I had ended up in the program in the first place, why, why I had ended up in that therapist's office, why it took me 12 books, why it took me as many years as it took me to finally put together some sobriety time and to really do the hard work, the honest work, the talking about all of it. And I think that's part of why, like I even offered to come on, on your podcast was because I'm so open about everything now Mm. because I am a fully integrated person now Mm. where I really wasn't 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. I had so many different lives that I lived. I had the work me, the school me, the, the meeting me, the family me. And all of those people were so different Mm. and nobody got the opportunity to really get to know me. Mm. And now I just get to be one person. I just get to be this fully integrated person who has all these different friends, but I have no problem with any of them meeting anymore. Was that something that you thought about? And yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. Like if I were to have a party and get different groups of friends there. Like, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, these people know secrets one through 10 about me. And these people over here know secrets, you know, 11 through 20. 
and these people over here, you know, 21 through 30, I can't get them all together because then mm. they might wholly know who I am if they all got together. And mm. I didn't want anybody knowing who I was. Mm. Um, I was too embarrassed and ashamed. Mm. And now to be as open as I am about everything, it's because I don't ever want to have to go through hiding anymore. It's I don't want to have to worry about this person knows these things and this person knows these things about me. Yeah, I very much relate to the idea of hiding. And definitely the, you know, the past few years has been a lot of getting out of hiding. Uh, and then also like the difficulty of understanding, wait a minute, so I don't want to hide, but I also don't need to say everything in my life. And so understanding boundaries as well. And it's been a messy process. We were having the conversation about boundaries earlier, you and yeah. I, um, where I've talked about being so wide open, but also some of that can come from having a lack of boundaries earlier in life Yes, and how I have to be not careful, but aware that I can overshare. Mm -hmm. I can go too far. I can give too much and to try and, and make sure that I'm not crossing somebody else's boundaries yeah. because I don't happen to have any of my own. Right. So that's something that I'm, I'm cognizant of now. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have cared. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting to me to see that change in myself over the last few years as well, getting into a program of recovery. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, I think I'm perhaps in the point of um, speaking too freely. I don't know. I'm doing a podcast like this. Maybe that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's um, a sign. But um, so earlier you were, you've, you've kept talking about uh, the reasons why you're in the program and why you ended up there. But I realized that we didn't actually get why you ended up there. We, we heard a little bit of like crisis point. Yeah. Um, I... Wow. Um, I don't know how in depth you want me to go here. Um, so I am a person who grew up in a broken family. Then when my, my mom got into a long-term relationship, um, it became this hyper-sexualized home that I was trapped inside of. There was no way we had all these rules that kept us inside of the house and no real way to be outside of the house. And again, very hypersexualized. I became the person at school that everybody came to talk to and ask questions of. Mm -hmm. I became the friend that passed out condoms. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had four or five people come up to me after high school and say, you're the reason I did not get pregnant in high school. Thank you. You know, cause mm -hmm. I was that person for everybody. I was very sexually explorative at a very young age. Um, I lost my virginity when I was 15 to a teacher in my school. Um, 
I ended up in many long-term relationships between high school and that therapist's office. I ended up cheating on all of those, those different people through that time. I was with hundreds of partners because I was trying to fill this spot inside of myself and using sex as the commodity to get there. I had no love for myself, no care for myself, no, no compassion for myself. And I thought, well, if these people want to spend time with me naked, obviously they feel these things for me. Mm. So I can trade them this act in exchange for those things that I need that I can't provide myself. Mm. So yeah, sex became this commodity to me and using it like that for so many years, I ended up in this therapist's office because finally trading it wasn't enough for somebody. Mm. And I wanted them to love me too. Mm. And through, again, months of conversations with this therapist, um, she ended up directing me towards a program. And that's how I ended up getting into the program. So you've talked a lot about not caring for your body. And at least the feeling that I've gotten, even if you haven't said it directly, is not loving or liking your body. Yeah, that is something that I definitely battle a lot of. I grew up with this notion that I wasn't worth the space that I took up. And I really internalized that message. And I say worse things to myself than people that abused me for years. And I ended up being able to put up with a lot of abuse because of that too, because I feel like that's what I deserved. And as hard as I try to work against these mental demons, they do still exist. Um, I do have a hard time loving my own body. Um, I've been getting better about it over the last few years, but I still have a lot of self-hatred issues and, and dislike for my own body because I don't like being limited. I don't like being in pain all the time. I don't like not being able to do the same things that other people can do just because of my body. And I do deal with a lot of self-hatred and self-loathing for that, for those purposes. Um, I wish that there were ways that I could, what do I want to say here? That I, I wish that there were ways that I could find to be kinder to myself but that is a monumental task which I've undertaken Mm -hmm. but it's it's not easy and it's not every day yeah but I'm getting I'm getting better every day a little bit I'm able to state my needs just a little bit more yeah it was interesting as I was beginning that um I actually hadn't gotten to the end, which I, I'm very glad to have gotten <laughs> what I got from you. But what I was going to ask was, you know, about about how you related to it now 
but I think I'll ask this specifically. You still struggle with this um, in multiple different ways. You've you've talked uh, about sexually and in terms of weight and in terms of pain and disability and loss. What are the ways that that you're finding little by little that you can love your body and treat it with more kindness? That is a long process that I've been battling. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a hard time saying nice things about myself and my body, but I think again, since, since starting this process a couple of years ago to start getting more answers, to start being, finding out what I can do, what therapies I can do, those kinds of things, little by little, I am learning that my body can handle a little bit more and that I can do a little bit more. Um, I'm hoping I'm having a couple of spinal procedures in the next few months that will hopefully enable me to be able to walk further and, you know, do more things than I currently can. And, and in those ways, I'm learning that I love when my body is strong enough to let me take a walk with my dogs or be able to lay on the floor and play with them. You know, it's not often. So it's in those little moments where I'm thankful. You know, I realized that when I asked that question, that there can be some expectation of um, perfection or making it be like, oh yeah, I used to have, this is happens in a lot of recovery stories of, of multiple types. I used to have all these problems. I got better. Here I am. Look at my pretty life. And that's not usually the way that it goes. Um, often things are, are cyclical or it's, it's a messier experience than that. And, and I want you to know that it's totally fine that you're not all the way there. Yeah. Like I said, I, it's, it's a long process. Mm-hmm. I don't think I, I will ever be a hundred percent okay with my body because I don't think I'll ever be able to a hundred percent accept that I'm going to be disabled for the rest of my life, that mm-hmm. I'm going to be in excruciating amounts of pain for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's a process of becoming more accepting of where I am and accepting of like, okay, well today I have enough spoons to go do this. Like I'm a big believer in spoon theory. Can you explain spoon theory? Yeah. So spoon theory is the idea of say you're a restaurant and you never know when you open up in the day, how many spoons you're going to quite have. And for somebody in chronic pain, what that means is you wake up every morning and every single thing you do costs you spoons. Say you want to wash your hair. Well, that costs you five spoons. You want to mop your floors. There's 15 spoons. And you have a set amount that you have. And when you run out, that's it. Your day's over. 
It doesn't matter if it's three in the afternoon. That's it. Your day is over. And those of us who've been spoonies for long periods of time can learn how to maybe borrow against tomorrow a little Mm -hmm. bit or save up so that tomorrow is a little bit better than today. You know, like I knew I was going to a concert this past week. So I saved up for four days ahead of time to make sure that I could go to this concert and have a good time. Mm -hmm. And then I knew the next couple of days would be awful for me. But that's okay because I got to go to this concert and have a good time. Mm -hmm. And I do certain things to help me extend my spoons, right? I got us, I found out where all the elevators were in the venue. So I had to do very little stairs or walking in that way. I was able to get handicapped seating. So that way we didn't have to do any stairs down to see anything. Right. Um, I remember you talking about the motorcycle trip that you did with your partner. And I remember when you started to to talk about that, I thought you were going to say, oh, you had this dream, but then you're like, I have this pain. I just can't do this anymore but was pleasantly surprised to hear about, oh, yeah, I can't do it the way that I would have done it or the perhaps the way that I wanted to have done it. But it is possible to do. I just have to be, uh, I have to work with my partner and I have to be really mindful of myself. Exactly. We had to be just very conscious of every single stop. And making sure that there was a place where we could stop every hundred or so miles. So, cause we knew that was just about my limit. Yeah. That was just about the, I have to pull off the side of the freeway and, and get off this bike for a few minutes point. And so he was able to find us gas stations. And sometimes it was like, okay, I need you to push it three more minutes, but three more minutes, we're going to be there. And then you can have 15 minutes off and we'll take, or yeah. we'll take an hour off and have lunch or do whatever it is. Um, so I'm really lucky too. when we were like packing the bags and I'm, I'm one of those overpackers. Like I'm mm-hmm. going to bring 10 pairs of pants for a three day <laughs> trip kind of thing. And so as I'm pulling stuff out of my dry bag, I was pulling my heating pad out and he's like, no, 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 no. Put that back in. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was, I'm sitting here with a heating pad right now with having this conversation um, cause heating pads are how I get through my life. And I'm so lucky he made me keep the heating pad. Cause the first day just getting into the hotel room and collapsing on the bed with the heating pad was so <laughs> worth it. You know, it, it was to be able to say that I had been able to do a full day of writing to get all the way into Nevada, you know, it was awesome. I'd been on the back before. Yeah. And even on the back, we can only go about 125 miles before I have to get off. And that's why it was really hard uh, when we rode between Montana and Spokane on this one leg of a trip. And there's no place to pull off in that leg. Mm-hmm. Just no place to pull off. Mm-hmm. And it it was crazy. I mean, there were other parts where down in Texas, there's just, there's no place to pull off. There's just none. If you Mm -hmm. do like the sides of the highways are so tiny that you'll get hit by a freaking armadillo. Yeah. How did you deal with that? Pushed, pushed my body past its limits and I paid for it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there was 
definitely like, okay, this day we're going to have to push really hard. You're going to have several like 200 mile treks. And we know that the next day that means I'm going to spend time in bed. But we figured it out, right? Just between here and there and every place we decided we wanted to go. And we, we ended up on that, on the, the big trip, it was 6,000 miles. We did 12 states. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a, a big way of showing that you know your limits and working really hard to make sure that it still works and creativity. Yeah. Creativity. There was a lot of creativity on, I mean, we got me different back braces. We stopped along the way to buy me a new back brace. Cause one, the spines gave out halfway through. <laughs> That's not what spines are supposed to do. No, no. I mean, I had, there were so many things that happened on these different trips. Like, our shoes wore through at a certain point because it was 119 degrees mm. for three days straight. Literally like the bottoms of our shoes were, had holes in them. Yeah. So if we were to step in a puddle, it would be all water up in the socks mm. and having to stop in the middle of a trip and get new shoes that you don't even know if those shoes are going to feel good or not on a trip. And you're allergic to sun kind of I'm allergic to the sun so if I get into the sun I break out in hives so like when we did this this trip it was 119 degrees through eight of the states and I was covered in head to toe in Kevlar and I even had on a shirt underneath my jacket to cover the little tiny strip of skin between my jacket and my glove yeah. Just so that wouldn't be, have any sun on it. I have um, face masks that I would wear so that it would be my face mask up past the point of the helmet and then my sunglasses. Yeah. So that way it would cover every single little piece of skin that possibly could have been seen the sun. Wow. That's a lot to do. <laughs> yes. It was a lot to do to stay out of the sun. But, mm. you know. When you break out in hives. <laughs> uh, well, I was just thinking like the whole trip, like doing all of these different ways to take care of yourself because uh, you, you certainly live your life. Like, I think this is actually true of a number of people that I know who have chronic pain or illness of some sort is uh, they tend to be fighters. <laughs> I think you have to be. Because if you don't fight to live your life in some capacity, mm. then, I mean, your life just becomes confined to a bedroom. Mm. Like I have a girlfriend who is literally confined to bed. Mm. She can, tries to get out of bed once a week to go to the grocery store. Mm. But other than that, her life is lived in a bed. Mm. And I don't, want that to be me I know that someday it may be me yeah but until then I'm gonna fight like hell to not have it be me so I do what I can in between to continue living my life when you said that I was just like that's ever you 
you're going to build some damn windows. <laughs> like, you're going to make it, like, the best room possible. Yeah. Um, knowing who you are. <laughs> uh, I feel like you were maybe inching towards this before, but do... People have a lot of different ways that they view their disability. Some people who were born with it um, are like, this is my body and I'm, I'm proud of it and I don't really want it to be different. Um, but then there are people like you who have gained stuff over time and pain and stuff like that. Do you... Yeah, I can't find a, a different way of saying it. Do you view your body as a prison? A lot of times, yeah. It holds me back from doing a lot of stuff. And at the same time, I have to be able to understand what my limitations are in order to be able to push them just a little bit to be able to continue to do stuff and live life. Because I don't ever want to be at a point where I can't leave my house. You know, I only leave my house on weekends right now just mm -hmm. because... That's what I have to do during the week to be able to do stuff on the weekends. Um, right now I'm rehearsing a musical. So to be able to leave my house once a week to be able to go do that means I have to take it really easy the other days of the week so that I'm able to play in an orchestra, you know. Yeah. So I really overdid it last weekend by going to a concert and then I had to conduct the orchestra on Monday and then rehearse the singers on Tuesday. And it was just so much. By the time I got home Tuesday, I was crying, just crying in the car ride home because my whole body hurts so bad. But I love what I do. I love what I do for work. I love what I do for fun. And sometimes tears are just part of it. I have to admit, I do sometimes worry about you and, you know, worry that, that you're going to make it worse. How, how do you love and take care of your body when you do have this kind of adversarial relationship with it? I do what I can do. There are days where taking a shower is too much. It just hurts too bad. And there are other days where, yeah, it's going to hurt, but it's what I need to do to feel better about myself. Right? So it's a lot of give and take and making agreements with my body. Like, okay, if... I let you stay in bed an extra two hours. Then we're going to get up and you're going to let me mop the floor. You know, making that give and take relationship with it. I realize I will never have a normal relationship with my body for the rest of my life. So I can either wallow in that or I can figure out how to live with it. And I would rather figure out how to live with it than not. I think that's that really speaks to me as someone who experiences gender dysphoria. 
there are certain things that I'm not going to be able to change. And, um, and I, like with my therapist, there's been a lot of like, you know, talking about acceptance and, you know, things like that. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, I know that's the right answer, but I'm not there yet. Or like, I'm angry about this. And how dare you? And, um, you know, I think that's true of me as well Is I'm probably never going to have a quote unquote normal relationship with my body. I'm never going to experience it the way that cis people experience their body. But there are ways that I can care for it and, um, and accept it and also accept the fact that I'm going to be angry sometimes with it. Yeah. I think, you know, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today kind of thing. Um, that if I'm unsatisfied with some part of my life that I have to come to accept it for what it is to be able to move on. And I think I've come to, accept in a lot of ways that my body is never going to be what I want it to be. And sometimes I just have to thank my body for what it will allow me to do and accept that, Hey, this may be all I'm able to do. I was wondering, do you often interact with others who have disabilities or chronic pain and yeah, how um, people have different ways of experiencing this. What has that been like for you? You know, I do interact with a lot of people that have chronic pain, but not in the same way as myself. Mm -hmm. I'm part of a lot of chronic pain support groups and that kind of thing, but I have a hard time relating with a lot of people in those groups because they don't ever want to be thankful for what they can do. A lot of times they want to talk about what they can't do anymore. Mm. And I would rather live in the can than the can't. Mm. And that's just me. That's just how I choose to live. And that's what helps me continue to get out of bed every morning. And I think that if I were to wallow more that I would be able to do less. I think that having a small bit of positivity helps you to feel just a little bit more capable in your body. At least that's what I found for myself. Yeah. That when I'm, upset or in a lot of pain and in a lot of I can't talk then I really can't do a lot but when I go okay well I hurt I'm just gonna have to do this thing hurt and do it anyways then I find a lot more strength in that for myself Yeah, I mean, we're holistic beings, right? So our body 
is of course affected by how we're doing mentally or emotionally uh, and vice versa our body is going to affect the way that we're feeling <laughs> emotionally and mentally um, and I think we're realizing that more and more we can't separate those things out they're mm -hmm. all going to be interconnected yeah and I mean it's hard to think about like when you get up in the morning thinking about, okay, well, if I shower now, that means I'm not going to be able to make dinner later. Mm. Right. Most people don't think in those kinds of ways, but us spoonies, we have to. Mm. Right. And to have that kind of relationship with my body of thinking about, well, okay, what I do now is going to cost me later. Mm. And that that's how I interact with the world. You have to be very pragmatic. Yes. And honest. Very much so. And I, having done it for so long, I think makes it come easier for me. Mm -hmm. Just because of, you know, having been diagnosed with fibromyalgia in my early 20s, mm -hmm. right? I've learned to live in this body for 40 years now and be in excruciating amounts of pain my entire childhood, my entire adulthood mm. and, you know, watch it slowly get worse over time. I have to be extremely pragmatic in order to get through an entire day. This, this is a, a bit of a going a bit of a different direction, but we've been talking about chronic pain and I remember earlier you were mentioning, but you know, if to get MS diagnosed or to, to show that you don't have MS, you would have to get an MRI and you have so many piercings. Um, you have piercings, you have a number of tattoos. Mm -hmm. How are those experiences of pain different from your other experiences of pain? That's the pain that I choose to put myself in. And I, it's a much different kind of pain. Yes. Like a piercing is such a temporary amount of pain. Mm -hmm. And a tattoo is such a specific area amount of pain mm -hmm. that it's easy to forget about, I think, almost. Like I can fall asleep while getting a tattoo. Mm. Not saying it doesn't hurt, but... I can think of enough other things in my life that I can literally will myself to fall asleep. It's interesting because my experience with getting tattoos, number one, the first time I got a tattoo, I was like, yep, I'm going to do this many more times. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so addicting. Uh, which is true for so many people who get tattoos is that they're like, oh, and now the rest of my life um and i also found it a really helpful way of um, being embodied because i was like oh i am in my body at this time and yes there were times where i disassociated because it's like okay right there right at the wrist that is mm, mm. but overall i was like oh that nerve feels very interesting or that nerve 
affects some other totally unrelated part of my body, unrelated in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you were talking about choice and is something that's t- come up in another interview that I did. Um, another in- conversation that I had on this podcast is the importance of choice. Mm-hmm. So very much so. Um, you know, my body may not be able to do a lot of things, but it's able to get pierced really well. I actually have a really low pain tolerance. So things hurt incredible amounts for me. So getting tattooed is excruciating. Getting piercings is excruciating and I don't care because I love it. Right. I have 35 or 36 piercings now. I want to say 36 and I have what 15 tattoos and I just love them. And I know that it's a pain that I'm going to choose to put myself in for the rest of my life because I just like the way it feels when it gets done. I don't know if it's like this for you, but I definitely feel, oh, this is, this is a way of me telling my story where my skin is a canvas. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a part of it. That's definitely a big part of it, too. It's interesting. I'm looking for a question, and right now I can't find one. Um, But I always like to make sure before ending of, is there anything else you want to say or, yeah, something to, to end off with? There's not really anything I can think of, no. Yeah, because I was thinking, oh, there's some topics that I could bring up, but that's going to be like its own, <laughs> its own like, episode. Um, thank you. My pleasure. For, for sharing all of these different experiences, many of them painful. You know, I think that's maybe the feeling that I'm getting is they're just... I often like to find this piece that I'm like, oh, well, maybe that's a little bit resolving. And I think, I think it's just not that way. I think there's a difference between painful pain and healing pain. Mm. And I think talking about a lot of the different things that have gone on in my life has been healing in a lot of ways. Mm. And even if it hurts to talk about some of them, or to think about some of them, that it's better to than to forget. Yeah. We'll end on that. fairly loudly yes yes i do because i'm mostly deaf oh sorry to say this like just so flippantly but like how many problems does your body i know right (laughs) 